Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week, we begin a continuation of Dr. Newfeld's series on Matthew called The Mysteries of Compassion. So join us in Matthew chapter 14 to 18 as Dr. Newfeld brings his message today entitled Grace and Forgiveness. Everyone needs grace. Grace is kindness expressed to those who are undeserving of it. And forgiveness, uh, that's pardoning the guilty. You know, I've noticed something about the culture that now makes up Western society. You know, whether it's the charge of sexual abuse or the charge of abusing the environment or the charge of abusing power and bringing harm, these are the sins that dominate modern thinking. And when these sins are discovered in someone, there is no grace and no forgiveness. Even to suggest such a thing meets with cries of anger and charges of re-victimizing the victim. Now, look, I'm not suggesting that these things are insignificant. They are significant. But that's not the point I'm making here. In the modern world, there is a belief that's widely held that grace and forgiveness ought never to be offered to the worst of sinners. The modern world wants utter condemnation. Nothing short of it will do. And this is where Jesus comes in. Now, I must say, he doesn't offer grace and forgiveness where there is no desire for it or where there is no repentance in faith. But where there is, his grace and mercy overflows in its superabundance. Now, I have a very vivid memory on this matter. I was once in a sermon recounting the story of John Newton, who, as you know, is the author of the very famous hymn, Amazing Grace. I had made mention of the fact that he was the captain of a slave trading ship, making his money on the miseries of the African slave trade. He was destroying lives for profit. Then I told of his conversion and then the dawning awareness that this was wrong, something he had never considered before that point in time. I told of the fact that he was the only slave captain in history to stand before the British Parliament and recount the cruelty of the slave trade, urging there to be a law to end it. You know, after the sermon, a very angry woman approached me and she felt insulted. This man should not be forgiven. So she said, he simply confesses Jesus and all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I said, it does matter. It matters so much that the sinless Christ suffered for the sins of John Newton. Not good enough, she said. I never forget that. In so much of our culture, there is no forgiveness. But then this attitude that offers no forgiveness really must be considered quite carefully. This attitude only works so long as we're confident that we're not the sinners, like those whom we are determined not to forgive. You know, others are sinners and they surely must be condemned, but we are not like them, we tell ourselves. Enter Matthew chapters 14 to 18. It's a section about great sins and about even greater grace. Let's get to know this remarkable section of the book of Matthew. You know, Matthew, who is the author of the book, knew all about sins and grace. He was a tax collector. In the ancient Jewish world, tax collectors were hired by the Roman authority and were considered by most Jews traitors to their country. The tax collectors were almost always Jewish. They collected the taxes for the Romans, But because they were Jewish, they knew the people quite well, and their knowledge of their own people made it very difficult for anyone to escape paying taxes. But tax collectors were also able to determine their own wages. So many tax collectors were, quite frankly, thieves. 
They overtaxed the population and in consequence became quite rich. In the case of Zacchaeus, he's a man guilty of fraud. I suspect most tax collectors were that. You have to imagine the tax burden, the poverty, and the hardship these men inflicted on their fellow Israelites. In Matthew's case, it gets worse. He was a Levite, which meant that his skills in writing and record-keeping all came out of his training in the law of God. That which was to be given in service to God and his people was now being used both against God and his people. And then came the day when Jesus walked by his tax booth and looked him in the eye and simply said, follow me. And Matthew left the money lying on the table and followed Jesus. And that evening, he invited the worst of sinners into his house to meet Jesus in his home. Many were outraged that Jesus would offer grace and forgiveness to people like that, people who had defied God and had made so many lives miserable. And that's it. Jesus spent time with the worst of sinners because in his words, and they're recorded in Matthew 9, verses 12 to 13, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus' followers were made of sinners. And indeed, the early church of Jesus became known for that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul mentions that some of the church in Corinth, that is, before their conversion, before they were washed of their sins and made holy, before that, they had been idolaters and adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, and swindlers, that is, con men. Con men take away people's hard-earned money. Why is grace to be shown to them? At least, that's what the Pharisees thought. But these very people found grace and forgiveness. It's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. So let's talk about what we will find in Matthew chapters 14 to 18. But before we do, let me explain why I've chosen this unit from the book of Matthew. You know, I've long loved the book of Matthew because it's the most Jewish of the four gospels. So let me explain that. The first four books in the New Testament are called the gospels. They are the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of those four books are a history of the life and ministry of Jesus. So these four books are the story of his life. Now, each of the four books are written from a unique vantage point. I like the example of four witnesses at a traffic accident. You know, one witness was standing on the overpass, and the second in the car behind the accident, and the third in the car coming the other way, and the fourth on the side of the road. And each one describes accurately and truthfully what they have seen, but from their vantage point. And that vantage point allows them to fill in the details, that is, details that can only be seen from their vantage point. And in the case of the four Gospels, only in hearing all four of them do we get the complete picture of the life of Jesus. So then what's Matthew's unique vantage point? Well, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and that's to say Matthew insists on examining each incident in the life of Jesus while going back to the First Testament and showing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament completely. And that's not the only unique feature of Matthew. Matthew arranges his material in some very distinctive ways. Let me explain that. It's of great value to read a synopsis of the four Gospels. Have you ever read one? You know, a synopsis of the Gospels will have all four Gospels in four columns on one page. That is, the four Gospels are placed side by side to each other. 
You know, once one does that, a very clear picture emerges. Matthew sometimes doesn't follow a strict chronological sequence of the life of Jesus. Sometimes he puts the incident in Jesus' life and his teachings in a topical arrangement. Now, this is very helpful if you think about it. I mean, putting things in topical order, I mean, one sees more clearly what Jesus had to say or, or what he did about a certain thing. Now, that's not to say that, that Matthew doesn't follow a general chronological sequence. I mean, after all, the book begins with Jesus' birth and it ends with his crucifixion and resurrection. But in between, in the arrangement of the details of the life of Jesus, Matthew puts some matters in a more topical order. He thinks that's going to give us a unique vantage point as we try to understand what the life and ministry of Jesus are all about. And I think he's right. Now here, at least, from my perspective, it really gets fascinating. If you outline the book of Matthew, you're going to notice instantly that Matthew records five major teaching sections of Jesus. Scholars like to call these the five discourses of Jesus in Matthew. A discourse is either a sermon to a crowd, or it's an address, or it's just a teaching session with his own disciples being there. So whether it's preaching to a large crowd or teaching his disciples, there are in this book five major discourses or five major teaching sections. And you could outline Matthew by these five sections, and that's really interesting to a Jew. All Jews knew that Moses, the great lawgiver, gave Israel five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law came in five volumes of teaching. And so the law of God, or the instruction of God as the Jews saw it, came in five volumes. Well, that's the point. Matthew wants his Jewish readers to understand that someone greater than Moses has come. Have a look, he says, at the five discourses of Jesus. Has he not surpassed Moses? Yes, he did say that he has not come to do away with the law, and he didn't. But has not a lawgiver greater than Moses come among us? Has not the king of forgiveness and grace been made known to the human race? Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. In the past five years, I found myself in a ministry role I would never have imagined. At first, I have to admit, the move from pastor to sitting in a studio behind a microphone, well, it seemed strange. But over time, having heard firsthand stories of God at work, I could have not been more convinced I'm right where God wants me to be. Thank you for your kindness and encouragement and supporting this ministry with your gifts and prayers. In gratitude, I want to send you a gift my newest series, Faith and What We Hope For, and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series. Five of my most requested messages from the past five years are in that one package. It's just a modest way of saying thanks for being with me. So call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and request Faith and What We Hope For, and we'll automatically send you our 2020 Highlight Reel series. It's my gift and it's free. Please continue to stand with us in 2020. Well, then let's see how the book of Matthew is arranged. Matthew chapters 1 to 4 begins with the account of Jesus' birth, right to the beginning of his public ministry, a ministry in which he announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then Matthew draws that section to a close by accurately recording the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon that so many have called the greatest sermon ever preached. That's in Matthew 5 to 7. So notice that the pattern has begun. First, we have a block of stories around the life and ministry of Jesus, and then ending that block of stories is one of the five discourses of Jesus, or an extended teaching, a time when Jesus teaches or preaches. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about the kingdom of heaven. It tells us who the citizens of the kingdom are, how the citizens of the kingdom are to live their lives, and then it ends with a powerful invitation to to forsake the insufficient foundations of our lives and come to Jesus and build our house on the rock. Well, that's section one. Stories of the life of Jesus ending with a major teaching section that summarizes those stories well. Now, once you're on to that, it all becomes quite easy to see how this gospel works. You can imagine the outline of the book of Matthew simply by paying attention to the five teaching blocks. You know, all the stuff before one of those teaching blocks are the stories. And then to summarize what we've read about Jesus, Matthew invites us to listen as Jesus teaches. Then that section of Matthew comes to an end. Now, the second section of Matthew begins after the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with chapter 8, and then it ends with the second teaching section, which is in Matthew 9 to 10, in which Jesus instructs his disciples about their mission. The third section starts in chapter 11 and then ends in chapter 13. Now, that chapter, that is chapter 13, well, that's a collection of a number of the parables of Jesus And it explains how, on the one hand, Jesus can speak about the kingdom of heaven as yet coming, and yet at the same time, it's already here. You know, for our purposes, the fourth section of Matthew, that's Matthew 14 to 18, that's the section we're studying in this series, well, it will have a major teaching section at the end of chapter 18. As we will see, chapter 18 is an extensive teaching about grace and forgiveness. And then, just so we see the whole picture, The fifth section of Matthew takes us from chapters 19 to 25. Now, there we'll see that chapters 24 and 25 is the teaching section at the end of this unit. And many of you know this. It's often called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, during the last week of his life, is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and he's overlooking the temple at Jerusalem. And there he's teaching his disciples what will be the signs of the end of the age and of his second coming. And with that, the five sections of Matthew have come to an end. But of course, the book's not done. Matthew chapters 26 to 28 now draws the book to a conclusion, bringing the entire story of Jesus to a climax, that is, with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So that's the outline of the book of Matthew, five sections followed by the climax to the story. But we, in our present study of Matthew, are going to spend the next four weeks And we're going to be in the fourth section of this book from Matthew chapters 14 to 18. And what we will find there is that this section covers the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Chapter 19 says that after this, Jesus left Galilee, and indeed he doesn't come back again. That chapter of his life and ministry now comes to a close. And we need to understand how significant that is. You know, at the beginning of the book, You know, when Jesus hears that John has been arrested, he leaves the area around Jerusalem and travels north, and he ministers in the region of Galilee. If you've never been to Israel, you might be amazed at how diverse such a small country can be. 
The south, which is Judea, is hilly, but it has an arid region, and there are deserts there. But the north, that is Galilee, it's a farming country. You know, in Jesus' day, the south, Judea, was the seat of political power. It was also the place of his strongest opposition. But the region of Galilee, with its farmers and fishermen, well, that was the area in which he first gained his following. And when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, he settled in and made his hometown in a small village of Capernaum, which lay right on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us that this was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. That is, in this region of great spiritual darkness, a great light had begun to shine. Indeed, the region of Galilee, because of its history, was a region which had become demonic. Jesus cast out plenty of demons as he established the kingdom of heaven. But as we come to Matthew chapters 14 to 18, we now see the final days of his Galilean ministry. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's going there to die. So let's see what we find in the study of Matthew 14 to 18. You know, this section begins with Jesus receiving the news that John the Baptist has just been beheaded by King Herod, who is living in Jerusalem. You know, the dark intrigue of political power is now all around. And we might expect that going to Jerusalem is the last place that Jesus would go. I mean, against the background of the tragedy of John's execution and the rise of a more assertive political power that will not tolerate religious prophets who cross the line, Matthew describes the power of Jesus. He tells of the feeding of the 5,000. And then he tells of Jesus walking on water at the Sea of Galilee. And then he adds a great many other miracles as well. And from those events, Matthew wants to show us a contrast. On the one hand are the elders of Israel. They are evil men, and they care only about external righteousness, and they don't care about the inner life, and neither their own inner sins, nor helping others. On the other hand, and here is the contrast, Matthew shows us a Gentile mother who comes to Jesus, begging him to heal her demon-possessed son. And there we see what Matthew is after. The elders of Israel seek no forgiveness, but this Gentile woman who has no part in the historic covenant with God, well, she does seek grace and forgiveness. What shall we make of this, asks Matthew. And then again, we see Jesus healing many, and then a second time, he feeds a multitude, this time 4,000. But what are we to make of this amazing contrast? The least, the the blue collar, the poor, they're coming to Jesus for grace, and the elders of Israel and the powerful have no concept of their own sin. And Jesus answers that when he first disputes with the religious leaders, and then as he warns his disciples to be aware of these men. Well, now, if they are not to follow the elders of Israel, whom are they to follow? And with that, Jesus marches his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in order to to clarify that matter. Jesus is the Messiah. He has come to build his church, and he will build it in the heart of the pagan kingdoms of this world. Follow Jesus and follow him only, and stay away from the false teachers. And with that, Jesus now plainly teaches what following him will entail. He's going to be leaving his Galilean ministry, and he's going to travel to Jerusalem, where he will die at the hands of the very men he has told his disciples to avoid. And this leads Jesus to talk about what following him will entail. It will mean the cross of suffering. But how does all this hold together? If Jesus is the great King and the Messiah, and yet he goes to Jerusalem to die, 
How are the disciples to understand so great a conflict of ideas? And so in order to help them, he takes three of his disciples up a high mountain where he is transfigured so that they see him in glorious terms. His face is like the sun, his clothes as white as light. And from then on, Jesus seems determined to show his disciples his power so that they might understand that when he suffers, that he is willingly laying down his own life. And with all of that, Matthew now takes us to Jesus' fourth teaching section that is recorded in this book. This teaching section begins innocently enough, or so it seems. Who is the greatest? It seems the disciples have not understood much. Rather than glorying in the greatness of Jesus and preparing themselves for the days of suffering, they have something else in mind. And what they're missing is the matter of grace and forgiveness. They don't understand that their mission is to find lost sheep and to restore sinning brothers and to show mercy to people who have accumulated a great debt before God. And then after teaching his disciples, Matthew says, when Jesus finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. His Galilean ministry is now over, and Jesus will now begin his journey to the cross. Well, putting it all together, we see that before Jesus went to Jerusalem, he was intensely concerned that the disciples understand the true nature of his ministry. He was about grace and forgiveness. He was offering the worst of sinners the opportunity to find mercy. He rejected those who only had a ministry of condemnation, and he opened up our eyes to the mercy of his gospel. John, I think we have a propensity to sort of define what the worst of sinners is. And then once we've defined them, no way do we have any grace or forgiveness for them. Yeah, and as I've said, you know, the, the, the problem with all of that is that we're absolutely assured that we are not the worst of sinners. And so we're relatively safe in marking out these people who are the worst and, and, and heaping uh, abuse on them and offering no grace at all. I mean, this is what makes the gospel of Jesus so amazing to me. I mean, how does a John Newton slave trader find grace from the hands of Jesus? Um, but if we, you know, we want a world in which there's no grace, none of us will be able to stand. In the end of the day, only God is good, we are not, and our sins will find us out. Uh, the, the marvelous news is grace can find us in Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Joshua from InDoubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio. And you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. Indoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. 
For more information, or if you would like to support InDoubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.